BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're the mom, the maid, the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka. Boy, this is a surreal time, <laughs> isn't it? Dr. Noreen Ahmad is in the studio with me today. Are we in a movie? What's happening? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like every day it's changing. It's a, on a day-by-day basis. Something new is happening, and it's like watching a movie unfold right I, in front of your eyes. Yeah, and you have no idea how this thing's going to end. No, no. <laughs> but we have to stay positive. Dr. Ahmad, I'm so <laughs> glad that you're here today. It's um, It feels very fortuitous that I met you only about a week ago. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. And um, we first got to talking at this women's event, and full disclosure, we talked about The Bachelor, because yeah. obviously... That's what we need right now. <laughs> <laughs> we really do need some Bachelor in our life. And Clara's season is postponed. Did you see that? No. Her season of The Bachelorette. Yeah, they're not filming it right now. You know, I heard I heard all the contestants were tested for coronavirus. Oh, so, my gosh. Really? Yeah. yeah. As part of their wow. criteria. I don't know. Breaking that could news. be a rumor. Hot tip. Could be a rumor. but Well, I mean, it would make sense. Yeah. You know? I'm super bummed, though. Yeah. I'm still... I'm still getting over um, this whole Pilot Pete thing, but no, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. <laughs> it was one of the worst seasons ever with an explosive ending. That mom. Were you team Barb or not? Uh, you know, I wasn't really team anybody at that point. <laughs> I know. I don't, I don't know. I, I wasn't even team Pete. I was just, I was done with the whole thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So um, it, it was funny when we started talking about The Bachelor the other weekend because you said, you know, like you work in this important job with crazy hours. You're a mom of two. And sometimes just like the rest of us, you just need to check on out with some Bachelor yeah. talk. So Monday night is kind of like my alone time where, you know, I'm I don't do patient charts. I come home. I turn on mindless television, and then I just veg out. And I really only allow myself like one or two mindless TV shows. Otherwise, it's not good for me. But, <laughs> but I think I think every mom, a working mom, needs whatever she can do to veg out. You know, I do like to read a lot too. I'm not just saying I only watch The Bachelor. I, I'm an avid reader. Hey, but, but there's no shame in the game. <laughs> but but it's a guilty pleasure. So. <laughs> I admit it. Well, so tell people a little bit about your background. Okay, so I am a board-certified dermatologist. I was trained in both uh, dermatology and internal medicine at Georgetown. I grew up here in the Quad Cities, so I went to United Township High School. Um, And then I went on to University of Chicago, and then I went to Yale, where I also got a a degree in epidemiology and public health. Um, so, you know, the study of disease spread and then went on to get my MD. Um, after w- training in, in dermatology and internal medicine, I decided to move back to the Quad Cities from Washington, D.C. and open my practice here um, at Medical Arts Dermatology. 
I love being back in the Quad Cities. I love taking care of Quad Cityans and, and the community I grew up in. We don't have a lot of uh, board-certified dermatologists in the Quad Cities. That shocked me when you said that. Yeah. There's very few of us here that actually have done, you know, dermatology residency and are board certified. So um, there might be two or three on the Illinois side and, and another handful on the Iowa side. So um, I'm glad that I could come back here and serve the community in that respect um, because we're what we're what's considered a, a dermatology desert, if, if wow. you've ever heard of that. Yeah. Um, so weird. It is weird. And there aren't many dermatologists that graduate every year in the country, so it's hard to recruit outside of the major academic centers. So that's probably one of the reasons that we have so few. I see. Mm -hmm. So when you're studying epidemiology, like at no point could you have anticipated that this is where your training would lead you? No, no. I actually wanted to uh, go into academics. I wanted to study uh, neonatology. You know, I was really interested in preemies and and management of that. And um, my first week in the NICU as a medical student, I just couldn't take it. Really? <laughs> it was so sad. It took you like five days and you're like, yeah. uh-uh. And I wasn't even a mom then. And it was just really hard on me. And, and I, God bless the neonatologists out there because they have a very, very hard job, a very rewarding job. But it, it, it just didn't jive well with me. You know, when you're in residency, or sorry, in medical school, you try all different specialties and you just see what clicks with you. And I loved dermatology because... It let me take care of infants to the elderly, men and women. And, you know, I got to help people, you know, look, feel better about their external features, sure. how they feel and look about them, or how they feel about the way they look, um, but also help them with chronic diseases, skin cancer, melanoma, autoimmune disorders. It's, uh, it's really interesting. Dermatology is sort of the window into the body. So you can tell a lot about systemic diseases or internal uh, disorders from looking at the skin. Interesting. We can look at a patient and tell that they have diabetes. That's uncontrolled. You can look oh at a patient. Oh, my gosh, don't skin. look at my face. <laughs> You've got lovely skin. <laughs> You're like, well, your foundation doesn't match, but otherwise no, you look healthy. No, no. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you need nothing done. You're perfect. Oh, thanks. <laughs> But yeah, it, it's a window into the soul. You can tell a lot about wow. a patient's health based on their skin. Um, so I find it really fascinating. So um, I really wanted to have you here today because even as much information is coming uh-huh. into my world, you know, through the media, I still don't feel like I really understand what the heck is going on. <laughs> yeah. And so when it's my job to share the information and all day long people are accusing me of fake news and how I apparently ordered everyone to buy the toilet paper. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's driving me crazy, the misinformation that's yes. out there. And on top of that, I just, myself as a mom of two, you're a mom of two, I, I wanted to speak with someone who's like really relatable. We could talk about it conversationally right. and just like get this thing out on the table and try to make it make some sense. Sure. Um, the other thing that I definitely want to say is, so you and I are recording this on Wednesday, the 18th. So if you're listening to this on Friday or three weeks from now, we're not going to get into specifics of what's going on here and now today because it's just going to get 
old mm-hmm. really, really fast, if, as we've seen. So we're going to speak really generally about current events, but we're going to speak um, specifically about what we're dealing with exactly, if that's cool with you. Sure. All right, excellent. Um, so misinformation. I mean, are you completely avoiding Facebook? Because it drives me crazy right now. Yes. And no, uh, <laughs> I try to stay away and then I get reels back in um, after a day or so. I really feel we're suffering from an infodemic. You know, we talk about pandemics. This is an infodemic. We have, <laughs> we have too much information and it's so hard to process. If you turn on TV, it's 24-7 news cycle. Mm-hmm. It never stops. Facebook is full of just, you know, misinformation, myths, um, and some great information too, but it's really hard to sift through and know what to, what to look at and what not, what to ignore. Right. And, um, I'm sure you're getting lots of memes and Mm. screenshots without sources and and all this stuff that's floating out there. It's, It's really confusing. The screenshots that list 10 different things like the border to Illinois and Iowa is about to be closed, according to my friend's brother who's in the National Guard. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. And the first thing you want to ask is, where's your what's your source? Yeah. What are you what are you talking about? Yes. Finding a good source is, is really critical. And I always direct um, patients and friends to the Illinois Department of Public Health website, yeah. Iowa Department of Public Health website. Um, as well as our county websites, as well as the CDC. And I think that's your best bet yeah. if you want the right information. Um, obviously, you're, you're doing great reporting here at WQAD, so I would plug to watch your news as well. Thanks, girl. But, um, <laughs> but you know, these uh, random, you know, links from a friend or a friend yeah. of a friend, I would not take that with a grain of salt. You know, just take, don't take it seriously. Part of me thinks that people are so confused because maybe we've seen too many movies that show us what a pandemic should look like, right. what um, what will happen, you know, as this as it goes forward, and so maybe we're all just imagining things because we we don't really know, and the only thing we've ever seen is fictional. You know what I right. mean? Like I think of Bird Box, where people are falling over dead just mm-hmm. because they looked at a thing. You know, whereas. People keep saying, like, well, you know, there's not many people that are dying. More people die from flu. What's the big difference? Yeah, there is is a big difference, actually. I mean, it it is not, um, well, first of all, it's not going to be like a movie's going to play out. It's not going to be this, uh, what is it, World War Z or zombie apocalypse and all this crazy stuff that people are sort of stretching their minds to. But I think we do have to take it more seriously than the flu. Okay. And and there's a good reason for that. I mean, if you, um, it, it is still unclear about the whole, how this whole thing is going to play out in terms of its epidemiology and its um, the death rate and the infectivity. But we do know a couple things. We know that um, that the fatality is higher than the flu out of data coming out of China. So the one good thing about China dealing with this first is we have a huge um, number of patients we can study in China. So if you look at the New England um, Journal of Medicine, uh, they suggested that at least 16% of the population in China that was affected had some moderate to severe illness. That's a pretty high number. 
and in, in the JAMA, the Journal uh, of American uh, Medicine, um, 72, a study showed that out of 72,000 Chinese uh, that were infected, uh, the overall fatality was 2.3%, but the flu is 0.1. So oh, wow. It's okay. significantly higher in terms of its fatality. So people are looking at baseline numbers yeah. instead of percentages. Yes. The percentages are what matter. Yes. Okay. So uh, the other thing is um, if you looked at the patients in China who were over 80, the case fatality rate was 15%. Yes. That's really high in the elderly. And when they studied... Um, those in China that had coronavirus age zero to four, 39, I believe it was like close to zero. Okay. So, so that's really the issue. It's, it's not that we're all going to get this terrible illness and we're going to all have severe disease and die. The, the, the issue is you could walk around with a mild cold, you could be a carrier and infect a loved one who's elderly. Okay. So... You know, really anyone over 60, particularly those over 80, are at very high risk of severe illness. And that's the issue. We have to take care of that segment of our population. Okay. Um, and we also know that there's something called an r not. It's like an R with a little zero underneath it in epidemiology. So that's, that's a number that, that tells you if you have a disease, so I have the flu, um, how many people am I likely to infect? So oh. influenza is about one. Coronavirus, they think, is about three. So oh, wow. you're likely to infect at least three people around you, and then those three people can go on and infect another three. So in that case, that's how an, an exponential spread of disease occurs. And so we think that wow. that is a little bit more contagious. Um, now... The other thing is, you know, an epidemic means that there's something that has a high rate of infection versus something that's endemic. So, for example, people say, well, tuberculosis isn't taking over the world. That's because tuberculosis or malaria is endemic, means it, it has a constant rate of infection within a population, and it's predictable, or in some cases it's seasonal. But in this, in this case... We're having an epidemic because the rate of infection is high, like I just described to you. We just don't know a lot about coronavirus. It's a brand new virus, and so it's just being studied for the first time. It's a novel virus. Um, and, and so our bodies aren't immune prepared it. for it at all. No, and okay. that's, why it's so, um, that's why it's kind of scary for people because we have no immunity to this, and that's why it's spreading comparing it to the flu, which is not, it's not a great comparison, is that, you know, we don't have vaccines for this. We don't have, uh, like we do have the flu vaccine. We don't have Tamiflu or, you know, antivirals that we know that can be used for coronavirus like we have for influenza. So it's just a different, it's like apples and oranges. And so when a lot of people say, well, the flu is more deadly, you know, I just want to dispel that because, yes, the flu is very deadly, but the, this this disease can uh, disproportionately affect uh, the elderly or the geriatric population in a way that the flu might not. See, and I was interested in that because it feels like kids have been exempt from this. Yes. And so it, it almost felt weird that the schools were closing because it's like, well, they're fine. But it's really more about what you're saying right. about being a carrier. Right. So there's, 
you know, in epidemiology, we talk about proactive school closures or reactive school closures. And a reactive school closure would be if there was a case in a school already and you shut the school down and you can prevent the spread of disease. But, you know, once it's already there, can you, you know, is it really that helpful? But if you proactively close schools, studies have shown you can really reduce the rate of spread of a, of a contagious virus like this. So, mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's important in terms of the social distancing to close the schools. As much of a pain as it is Mm -hmm. as a mom, um, you know, keeping the kids apart, keeping them away from, you know, elderly um, relatives who are ill, those are are important things to do. And it is a big pain, and I feel it because I have six-year-old twins at home, (laughs) and... I'm every day I'm like, what are we going to do? You know, I'm very (laughs) blessed that I have people in my life that can watch my kids so I can continue to work. Um, You know, I have great nannies. I have uh, my parents live across the street, but they are over 60. Oh, yeah. And so uh, I really at this point am limiting contact, my kids contact with them, um, you know, in, in, in in this short time until we know more information. Um, so, you know, it really takes a village to, to raise your kids in this time. Yeah, that's what we talk about regardless, regardless of, but of this, especially but especially now. Yeah. I mean, I'm very, I'm very blessed that I have people in my life, but I do, I do ask them like my nannies when they come in, you know, do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? Cause that's really important to um, yeah. know who's coming into your home too. Certainly. Um, so it's one of those things where, I feel like we're also getting really hung up on cases. Like there's a case in Whiteside County. Now there's a case in here. And and people act like it's like an army marching towards. Yeah. Is, I mean, do case numbers matter at this juncture? I mean, yes and no. I don't think that they matter to the general population because we should all be acting like it's here. Okay. Because it probably is, right? Right. It it is. And, And I think once more testing kits would become available and and people are tested at a more rapid rate, you would see that it is here. Um, And that shouldn't scare people. I think we should just still take the same precautions in our daily life as if it is already prevalent in our community um, and and not focus so much on the numbers and the counts. The counts do matter to the doctors taking care of the patients to know who the patient is, who they had contact with, where they were. So in that respect, you know, we like to know the numbers to map out where in the county we're seeing a cluster or an outbreak or in a nursing home. So in that case, it does matter. But for the general population, I don't think we should just be checking the tally every morning mm-hmm. because it will drive us crazy. What are the chances that I have already had it and already recovered from it? You know what I mean? And I don't yeah. mean me specifically, but like if it's already here or um, if people have gotten sick and it's sort of been unexplained, like is there a chance that it's just been sort of floating around this whole time regardless? Yeah, I, I think it, I think that is, you know, cert- likely to some extent. Um, we had that talk in the newsroom yesterday and we got real conspiracy theory about it, <laughs> which I'm ashamed I, I to would admit avoid to conspiracy theories. <laughs> You know, people have been asking me, is this a man-made bioterrorism thing? And I'm like, no, no, we, we're not going down that road. Yeah. Well, you know, we're not sure the origins of this, but, 
you know, we think it might have been, you know, animal to human, but that's still not even been confirmed in China. So, so these theories of, yeah. um, you know, the conspiracy theories related <laughs> to it, I, I just try to discredit those along with some of the, the myths of treatments and how to stay, keep away from it and, you know, drinking salt water and gargling. And I, I'm hearing all kinds of stuff from patients. And I just have to say, you know, no, follow the social distancing protocols. I tell my kids, stay a hula hoop distance away. And then that, that's like, they can understand that. Like a six-year-old yeah. can, can, when I say like, stay six feet away from this person, yeah. you know, they don't know what that means. Yeah. But if I say, pretend you're wearing a giant hula hoop. And then they're like, that's oh, I get genius. that, mom. I know it's so cheesy, but, <laughs> but it works. Hey, it works. Kids. Yeah. And, it works. And don't have the news on like 24-7, like the CNN tickers and all that stuff. Because, um, you know, my kids were starting to pick up on that. And they kept asking me, like, we can't go here because of corona. We can't do this because of corona. And they're getting a little bit depressed about it. So I'm trying to keep it a little bit light at home. Yeah. All their birthday parties have gotten canceled. All their, you know, outings, field trips, and things with school. So they're really feeling it at home. And um, just try to try to keep it light and, uh, you know... Put on Disney Plus. <laughs> Frozen <laughs> 2 helps. is out now on Disney Plus. We've watched it like 70 times. Um, I want to come back to that, to, to, to working with our kids through this crazy time. Um, but the other thing that we were chattering about in the newsroom, and again, I'm sorry if this is so crazy, um, is the response to this is so huge that the question's been brought up multiple times like, well, what aren't they telling us? Because I can't understand the big response to what I'm seeing in the community. You know what I mean? Like, like it seems out of proportion. Yeah. You know what I mean? To the average person who doesn't know anything like me. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they're hiding anything from us. A lot of they, people they. say, I don't think the government <laughs> or, or, you know, the, the national institutes of health, yeah. Dr. Fauci, who's always on television, who's, a very awesome guy and a stand-up source. Um, I don't think anything's being hidden. I think this is more of a proactive approach okay. to, con to containing disease, and I think we should take it very seriously. Yeah. I, I know there's a lot of naysayers out there that uh, don't believe that this is a real threat, but if you look at the models in China and in Italy um, and the forecasting, you know, if we don't do something we don't want to end up like them yeah and so that's the thing you know it sound it to people it sounds extreme and 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 it is in the sense of closing businesses and schools but what's more extreme is if something like that were to play out here and and we don't want that certainly so, you know everyone is um always gonna be like not everyone but but people who don't trusts you know the government and um, don't trust the the health leaders are always going to be skeptical and 
Well, there's more experts out there than ever before. You right. know what I mean? People who have an opinion and yeah. a friend who told them differently. I mean, it's it's crazy right now. Yeah. And, and also, if we are very good at social distancing and we don't have crazy cases, they're also going to say, well, see, nothing bad happened. Yes. And I'm preparing for that, for right. everyone to go, oh, see, totally overblown, when in fact the things that we did but were... But that's, that's going to be an awesome day when yeah. we say, oh, you know what? It didn't, it didn't really take over this country because we did a great job in preventing the spread of this virus. So that's, that's my goal is to just encourage people to, to do what we're told to do, to social distance, to make good choices about traveling, make good choices about, you know, going to parties or hosting things in your home mm-hmm. um, and do what the health department says, which is, you know, um, clean cover, contain. The three C's, all right? Clean, cover, contain. Yes. So I'm going to go over that for you guys. So the clean would be wash your hands, right? We all know that. But let's talk about 20 seconds of hand washing with soap and water. With your kids, you can sing a song, pick Mary Had a Little Lamb, Mm -hmm. make it it fun. If, um, If I was in Vegas right now, which I was last week, if you start with the Britney Spears lyric of, um, for the Hit Me One More Time song, if you start with My Loneliness, by the time you get to the Hit Me Baby, <laughs> that's about 20 seconds. So think about that the next yeah. time. I think I did that with the Lizzo song, <laughs> The Truth Hurts. Yeah, yeah I, I think I've tried that with Lizzo, and that helps me wash my hands. My friends and I were washing our hands at the, at the I don't know, probably the Bellagio or something like that, and, and we were singing Hit Me Baby. And, <laughs> and a girl walked in, and we were both like, <laughs> and she just looked at me and she goes, get it, girl. <laughs> and I did. Awesome. I love that. I love that. So we pick your cocktails. favorite song. It's fine. Yeah. Pick your favorite song, your rap song, yeah. whatever you want. Do And uh, wash your hands. And then um, if you're going to use hand sanitizer, if you have any left, Ugh. because it's all gone. But if you have some, it'd be 60% alcohol-based hand sanitizer. And then the other thing is high-touch surfaces is what I call them. So your handles in your home, your um, countertops, the, the thing, you know, the flusher on your toilet. The Ah, I always forget that thing. Don't forget that. <laughs> yeah, the little flusher. Um, those are the high-touch surfaces in your home, and you should wash them with, um, you know, cleanser, the 70% alcohol or higher, or if you don't have that, could take 10% bleach and water mixture and wipe wipe it down. Okay. Um, so high high traffic, high touch surfaces. So cover. We all have to learn the the sneeze protocol. Sneeze into your into a tissue or in the corner of your elbow because we know that this is droplet spread. Okay. Okay. So that's really important. And then contain again. Contain yourself the social distancing to flatten the curve that we're talking about. Okay. You know, so the other thing I've been seeing people talk about, and um, you're a dermatologist, so Mm -hmm. people are saying they're washing their hands so much in the sanitizer. They're getting super dry. What do we do about that? Oh, so I know I'm recommending hand sanitizer, and this is the dermatologist arch nemesis, because I hate hand sanitizer from a derm perspective. Okay. I see so many patients with eczema. We call it dyshydrotic hand eczema from overuse of hand sanitizer. Um, So what you should do is if you start to get those cracks in your hands, dry, itchy, red patches from overwashing, 
Um, immediately apply moisturizer. I like Aquaphor, Vaseline. God, every mom's Eucerin. got a couple of those yeah. bottles. Whatever you'd put on your baby, put on your hands. Um, if you're really flared up, you can use a low dose, you know, over the counter, 1% hydrocortisone ointment to quell your flares. But, you know, desperate times, desperate measures, you gotta, you gotta wash your hands and, and yeah. use sanitizer, even though it'll flare your underlying, you know, eczema or something. Gotcha. Yeah, Who knew that had a name? Yeah, dishydrotic, <laughs> you know, eczema. That's a, look it up, guys. <laughs> so I've been really diligent about washing my hands, cleaning my work surfaces, cleaning my cell phone, my Good. purse handles. And then I sat there at the makeup table today and I went, when's the last time I washed these makeup brushes? Oh, yeah. I mean, we probably ought to be washing those we more should be, too. We should wash them anyway because yeah. in dermatology, I see a lot of um, infections like bacterial infections, eyelid dermatitis, eyelid reactions from unclean brushes and Ugh. old makeup to begin with. Um, so yeah, I think this will just prompt us to clean our brushes more and, okay. and our makeup Doing that tonight. and wipe it all down. Yeah, I'm guilty of it too. So even those little yeah. like, beauty blender things. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, oof, I need to throw this out. It's kind of stinky. <laughs> no. I know, and especially because they're so expensive. I know. So I, know. I hate throwing those out. But yeah. You got stuff. Um, would there be any concern about like throwing out your toothbrush more often or anything like that? Um, you know, I I haven't really thought about that, but. Um, I mean, I think only if you're infectious yeah. or contagious. Just don't be I, gross about yeah, it. Yeah, just don't be gross. I mean, I know I know with my kids, every time they had strep throat, we'd throw out the toothbrush. But yeah, yeah, yeah. this is different. Which, when you have the Sonicare, gets really expensive. Yeah. <laughs> I don't buy my kids Sonicare. They get the cheap toothbrushes. Yeah, I just, I had um, I had strep, like, for a whole month last month. And oh. it was, like, kind of insane. So, yeah, I had to throw out two Sonicare heads. And I'm like, come on. These are, like, 10 bucks a pop. I know. Yeah, but I'll buy, like, $30 beauty blenders. No problem. Priorities. Not a problem. <laughs> okay, so um, let's get back to um, to uh, talking uh, to your girls. So they're overall just, like, confused and um, learning about hula hoop distance. Yeah. Like, what else, what else has been um, helpful in keeping your girls busy right now? Well, I think I told you this earlier, but I made this... <laughs> great mistake or the best thing in my life just happened to me. I don't know, but we got a puppy. <laughs> I'm not recommending oh everyone gosh. go and buy a puppy to, to help with your isolation, but um, that is definitely keeping <laughs> me busy yeah. and them busy. It's like having a newborn again. I mean, I'm up every two hours or every hour sometimes with this little pupper, but um, <laughs> he's so darn cute. So that's helping them. I think we're trying to maintain a, a schedule sure. still. The first couple days, I would just let them be in their pajamas all day, and then, you know, it just they just got cranky. So they wake up, you know, they still have their breakfast as usual. And, and I bought a lot of these workbooks, you know, those math workbooks uh -huh. and whatever, you know, the teachers use. And I'm trying to have them do a little bit. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. They're, they don't yeah. want to listen. They don't listen to mom. They listen to teacher, but they don't listen to mom. Um, <laughs> And then keeping them up with their lessons, you know, piano and stuff. We're, our piano teacher offered to do it remotely via FaceTime. So they're going to do a piano lesson at home. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so that that's neat. And then just... 
staying busy around the house, crafts. I do put my kids to work and I make them clean though. Yes, <laughs> They're really that's into good. it. I'm like, who can wipe off all the handles? And I give them a little Clorox wipe and they go for it. So put your kids to use too. But, um, you know, just, they are disappointed, you know, I, of course, because they, they like school at this age, at age six. They like being around their friends. So it is a bummer, but I think I have a different case. I mean, my kids are, they're children of a doctor anyway, so they're kind of used to, you know, the hygiene protocol and and all the disease talk and stuff. So they're a little bit more desensitized, I think, than most kids. But um, it's going to be hard. We have a whole month to go, at least in Iowa public schools of, um, oops, sorry, Uh, in Iowa public schools of uh, school closure. Yeah. it's gonna be it's gonna be work for all of us. Yeah. You know, as a you know, I mean, I I I would say though, you're a mom of two. Yeah. I, have, I had twins, so we're no strangers to social isolation. <laughs> after yeah. you have a baby, I mean, after I had my twins, I was just on quarantine in my own home from life because it just takes over. So I feel like moms we we have we understand what it's like to be locked in with your children (laughs) well and then now you've added a puppy to the mix i know so i'm curious like what's helping you stay sane right now especially with your workload yeah i think you know the bachelor no i'm joking (laughs) but that's cool but you know i uh i do like talking to people you know talking to my friends i facetime with family um I'm trying to, you know, do things like this, get out and and spread a positive message instead of this doomsday message. Yeah. Um, I think that's important. Um, And, you know, talking to my patients, a lot of my patients are scared. They call the office if they're on, you know, immunosuppressive medicine. They don't know what to do. If they've had an organ transplant, they don't know what to do. So talking to patients and help, you know, alleviating some of their concerns is also helping me. Yeah. Um, but, no, I I don't know. Ask me a week from now, and we'll, we'll see true. where I'm at. Because so far, so good. I'm handling it well. Um, but, you know, it, it's always evolving. And, um, you know, it, it's hard as a doctor because... We don't, we don't really know what to do, you know. I'm not a frontline doctor. I'm not in the ERs. I'm not um, in the ICUs. I mean, I used to do that, but I don't anymore. I'm an outpatient mainly. So telling our patients, you know, if you don't have an essential office concern, maybe don't come in. If, okay. you, if you need a refill, call, call our office, and we can maybe do it over the phone for you and just tr- sort of limiting patient exposures to healthcare workers and to each other in waiting rooms. Another tip for our patients is not to bring multiple people to an office visit. Yeah. So, you know, and don't bring all four children and your grandma and grandpa just because you want to, you know, get your skin checked. So we're trying to limit visitors. Um, and we, our nurses are great. They're, they're phone triaging. So if, when they call patients, they ask them, do you have fever? Do you have symptoms? Cough, and and then they direct them accordingly. Um, in fact, our practice, like many other practices, um, are taking temperatures of our patients okay. when they enter the building. Um, so before they get back into a patient area, they're they're screened by a nurse with a temperature and a screening questionnaire. So th- these are these are ways our practice 
is sort of changing. Now, some practices are closing down completely and going to telemedicine, which is going to be really interesting to see Yeah, um, how doctors are going to be you know, reimbursed, too, for their time, but also to take care of patients over the phone or via FaceTime. Is that something you're open to? What do you I'm think? I'm definitely open to it. Uh, the problem with our clinic is uh, we do a lot of procedures. You know, I do, we do a lot of surgery. We remove a lot of skin cancer. Obviously, those things can't be done over, mm-hmm. over FaceTime. But, you know, checking up on patients with skin conditions or immune disorders or looking at suspicious moles over a screen might be helpful. So teledermatology or telemedicine, you're going to see this sort of ramp up, I think, in the next uh, month. Yeah. You know, you might, your doctor might even be doing it already. I know, I know a couple of practices are completely switching over on the Iowa side to telemedicine. But like right now is probably not like the best time to like inquire about Botox. (laughs) You can always <laughs> inquire about Botox in a situation okay. like this. No, yes. Um, you I know mean, what? just imagine Self-care. what my forehead is going to look like in three weeks. <laughs> I know we're all well, we're all going to be like frowning and all all the lines. All just the looks so weathered, pale <laughs> yet weathered. Hey, pale is good. Stay away from the sun. But um, <laughs> I think that yeah, I mean, elective things like cosmetic procedures, Botox, fillers, lasers, all that stuff. You probably want to postpone it. Yeah. And it is kind of a bummer to, you know, the the physicians that provide that service or, you know, nail salons and hair salons and things like that. So I think you had posted about things you could do to help businesses. Yeah. Like buy the gift cards ahead of time. Yes. And maybe you don't go get your hair done, but you buy the gift card for next month. Yeah. So I liked those ideas. So here's the thing about those ideas. (laughs) So my gym is closed and I've been in this like personal training mode. Like I've been, I'm three months deep in like this, I don't want to say intense cause I'm yeah. not, but you know, like really focusing on fitness and like working on, um, nutrition and things like that. And so now it's like, Hey, support local business, eat carry out. And I'm like, crap, <laughs> these two <laughs> goals do not match and the gym is closed. So yeah. th- this is my struggle. Yeah, <laughs> this is that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> I combat that. I got. I just got one of those Pelotons. <gasps> Ooh. It's pretty cool. Yeah? And it really does help with social distancing. I don't like to work out at the gym anyway because yeah. I hate getting, like, super gross and sweaty in yeah. front of people. So I'm kind of introverted when it comes to that. So get a I bike. do. Yeah, I do think... Um, like tipping is really important right yeah. now, even for the carry out. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I think it's super, super helpful. Yeah, the gift cards is a good idea. Um, I found myself in the Starbucks drive through the other day, which I was like, oh, come on. Like I could have just gone to the Dunn Brothers or any other wonderful yeah. local coffee yeah. shop. So maybe think about that. Um, and then, yeah, like don't cancel any of your memberships or subscriptions, you know, just like throw a couple couple bucks their way and just yeah. keep it keep it moving. I think another thing um, we could do is also donate blood. Oh, yeah. So there is a shortage and um, people are asking the community or for the blood centers are asking the community to, to donate blood if you can um, to the Mississippi Valley um, um, Regional Blood Center. So I think that's important. That's something you can do, um, but also maybe help out your 
um, the elderly people in your life who maybe you don't want to go to Walmart or Hy-Vee and get stuff, you know, and expose yeah. themselves. So maybe you can pick up groceries for a neighbor yeah. and drop them off or see what they need. Um, I think that would be a great thing to do. So maybe acts of service now would be awesome. Yeah. We're all in this together for sure. <laughs> yeah. However long it lasts, whatever Hopefully comes next. Hopefully not too long. But, and, and that's the other thing about looking at the numbers because you don't know when when this is going to quell. Yeah. And, you know, in an, from epidemiology perspective, you need at least two to four weeks to see whether this curve will go down. You yeah. just can't say, oh, by tomorrow, no, we're headed in the right direction. It's a it's a marathon. You've got to, you know, we, we won't know until months go by whether this was effective, which is the hard part for people. So is that when things start to get uncanceled and life starts to resume? It's like we need to see the numbers change first? I think so. Okay. I, I think that's what people are waiting for. Yeah. To get control over the situation and then slowly opening things back up again. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, I really have no idea. I'm not, I'm not uh, number crunching, uh, you know, at the NIH or the CDC right now, but um, I, I trust the doctors have a good handle on what's going yeah. on, you know, the, the leadership. And I want to actually plug our doctors here in the community. They're doing amazing things, you know, between both hospital systems, Unity Point and Genesis, and and all the private practices, really working together, uh, having daily meetings, yeah. um, coming up with strategies on infection control and um, personal protective equipment for our staff. I, I think I'm seeing a lot of my colleagues do amazing things together and, and work together in interdisciplinary ways. And, you know, I have a friend who's a psychiatrist who's sending out information about um, you know, how to combat depression and anxiety and isolation during this time. And then I have other friends who are in infectious disease or who are um, obstetric gynecologists who are also disseminating information to their pregnant patients. Yeah, I know a lot of pregnant moms who are a little nervous for sure right yeah. now. I'm sure they are. And, and I think they, they should be um, cautious, uh, but not anxiety-ridden. Uh, I think you should treat pregnancy as, um, you know, a higher-risk uh, group in general because pregnant women, um, you know, are often, you know, somewhat immunosuppressed in a sense. But the, the data out of China, again, is promising. So they haven't found coronavirus to be in uh, amniotic fluid okay. or cord blood. Um, so we don't think there's something called vertical transmission, which is mother-to-baby transmission. We don't think that that's occurring. So I would tell your friends to just still take caution, you know, social distancing if they can. I think that's important for pregnant women. But, um, you know, and to also consult their obstetrician if they have specific questions. But, you know, pregnant women with fevers, and a fever is, I just want to clarify, fever is anything over 100.4, um, they should they should contact their obstetrician for guidance on what to do. Okay, cool. Do we think we've covered everything coronavirus <laughs> today? So we're at like the 45-minute mark. I'm going to check my Instagram and see if any more questions have come in because... 
Um, I really wanted to see what people were curious about. Um, oh, I think I think you mentioned <laughs> something about like surfaces. Like they didn't want to. Someone didn't want to order out because it, they were afraid it was on surfaces. Oh yeah, is there cross contamination in food? Yeah, I, I don't think in food. I mean, you cook food at high temperatures. Um, I think there there is some data showing that the virus can live on cardboard maybe 24 hours and on plastic and metal surfaces two to three days, which maybe just, you know, take the extra caution of wiping things down. Okay. Um, if you don't know where they came from. Gotcha. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't be caught up in not ordering, you know, your takeout because of that. Okay. All right, we're going to set this topic aside, <laughs> okay? Um, and I want to get into a little bit more about your career and, oh. um, and your background because when we met at this women's event, you um, gave a statistic that really blew my mind about um, the change in how many women are in medical school now yeah. versus yeah. the very recent past. Tell me about that. I, so I believe in about 1960s, it was one in uh, every 10 physicians was a woman. And at last year, it was the first time in history that 51% of medical students were women. That's awesome. So it's a really big change over the last uh, couple decades, which is amazing. But the interesting thing is, and the statistics can vary on this, but there's only about 13% of women or maybe up to 19% in leadership roles, so who are um, chief medical officers or deans of medical schools or cha chairman of the department. So there's still a disparity in uh, the leadership uh, roles of women in medicine, even though there are now more women in medicine than men. So that that's something that I think we'd like to change. Well, and you were talking about your leadership role as chief resident. Yeah, Am I yeah. remembering correctly? Yeah. Okay. And that was a big deal. Yeah. Um, I, I was chief resident uh, at Georgetown in dermatology, and, and that was probably one of my first leadership roles. Um, and it was hard, you know, being a, being a chief resident and managing people, and, and you have to learn those skills. And and now, you know, as a, a newer attending, you know, I've been out um, – since 2013. Okay. So trying to work my way up in leadership roles in the community, and I think that's important for women and women of color specifically to see themselves in a leadership role. Yeah, tell, tell um, the listeners about your family's background. Okay, so yes, my parents are from a country called Bangladesh. It was formed in 1971. It used to be called uh, East Pakistan, and then there was a civil war, or there was a war of independence. And so my parents were very uh, motivated and educated, and and they were smart, and they got scholarships to come to the United States in the 70s. And so we were all raised here in America. And um, both my parents are. Um, they, they came here to study physics at, at Penn State University, and both my mom and dad were in the same program, but it was interesting because, you know, my mom had three children by the eight time she was, I th think, 25. Wow. So in order to finish her degree, it took her nine years versus my dad, who could finish in a shorter period of time. And that was sort of the first time I saw that, you know, women work twice as hard <laughs> in the same field, you know, to get, yeah. to get to the same spot. So 
that was a good role model for me um, to see my mom succeed in her advanced degree with three children. You know, what a barrier to education, but um, it, it sort of proves you can do anything. And then you mentioned that, you know, you wanted to go to medical school and yet there were all these people in your ear going, now, don't you want to be a dental hygienist? Yeah. And like nothing about <laughs> dental hygienists, yeah. but just the idea that people were thinking like, now, honey. I know, I know. That's I, not for you. I, I went to high school here and I loved high school. I went to UT, but my guidance counselor at the time, you know, God bless her, she's deceased, but she had very antiquated ideas of what smart women should do. And I was a really good student. I had great scores. And I told her, hey, I want to go to the Ivy League. I want to be a doctor. And she just kind of looked at me funny and thought, well, you should do something safer. I, you know, and, and I think she just didn't have experience. Sure. And she also didn't have experience with girls who wanted to do th- something like that. So she just kind of directed me towards, you know, dental hygiene that would be easier and I could go locally and this and that and and I mean I nothing against that profession it's amazing but it just wasn't something I was passionate about I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I knew I had the drive to do it so I was very lucky that my parents are the ones who actually pushed me to apply and um you know and I ended up going to to University of Chicago and then Yale and and then SIU for med school, and then Georgetown for residency, and I just kept going. And, you know, if you really listen, if I had listened to that, those voices that were telling me to play it safe, I probably wouldn't have become a doctor. So yeah, I think that, you know, that was a very old-fashioned view of what women should do. And, and women were discouraged from going into medicine because they were told they were fragile or emotional or couldn't endure long surgeries and they were sort of you know poo-pooed away from it and and historically I mean speaking and and now that's not the case you know but um, I wish you know and and I again I'm not blaming my high school you know for anything but I think the guidance of the counselors at that time was not was not ready for Strong women who wanted mm-hmm. to do big things. So I think uh, I think we needed to change that. <laughs> what a cool story to tell your yeah, girls. Yeah, yeah. You know, I hope I, I hope uh, I'm a role model to them. And oh gosh, and, of course you are. And even now, you know, it's it's not just about being a doctor. You know, it's also about what I can contribute to the community. So. Um, being involved in local organizations is something that's important to me. You know, I, I like being, a, I'm on the Board of Health for Rock Island County. Um, that's that's pretty awesome. And I get to use, you know, contribute my experiences and knowledge to, to better the health of our county. Um, I, I'm involved in United Way, Women United. It's a, a we're called Charter Women, you know, for early um, childhood um, learning um, and, and these little things, you know, to help your community as a female physician, a woman of color, sort of put yourself out there. Um, I think it's good. You know, you just don't want to have homogenous men at the table all the mm-hmm. time. Agreed. Got to mix it up. Well, <laughs> and yet I was surprised to hear that often, and maybe not often is the right word, but every now and then you'll be in the middle of an appointment and they'll say, When's the doctor coming? <laughs> and you're like, Right here, honey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it used to be they'd say, 
you're too young to be a doctor. You look too young. And now they've stopped saying that. So I'm kind of sad Brutal. about it. That's savage. <laughs> I'm like, oof. No one's giving me that you're too young to be the doctor comment. You know, I used, I used to be mad when they said it. And now I'm like a little bummed that nobody says it anymore. But, um, but yeah, there's been times where I've, I've walked in a room. I've talked to the patient. I've introduced myself as Dr. Ahmad. And at the end, they're just like, is the doctor coming in? I'm like, no, that was me the whole time. Jeez. But luckily now my patients have got to know me and they know who I am. But in the beginning, you know, especially when you're rounding in a hospital, I've had patients say, you know, hey, take my trash out or take my tray away. And you're like, I I mean, and I do it. I'm like, sure, I'll move your tray. But I think the assumption was that I wasn't the physician taking care of them. Sure. So, uh, or I've, I've gone into rooms in the hospital where uh, I was with like a male medical student that I was teaching and the patient directed the conversation to him. Like, well, I've had this for seven days and, and I'm like, you who? That's a student. He knows nothing. Yeah. You know, but the assumption is that, you know, the male in the room is the, uh, is the authority figure, is the doctor, and, and the, the female's typically not. And so th- those are like little anecdotes of, from training. And I'm, you can ask any female physician this, and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll tell you that um, they've experienced stuff like that. Well, and it's certainly not to imply that people are like out there blatantly discriminating no. against women. It's just more like what you're talking about, about changing our viewpoint of... Mm-hmm of the roles that women play yeah. because we do them all and we do them lots. And yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, uh, we're, we can juggle anything. <laughs> I know. We're and the jugglers. other thing we kind of like, um, we kind of, uh, stupid word. I can't remember. We commiserated about is the idea of always being afraid that someone will leave us out of an opportunity thinking that we're too busy and, oh, she must have kids. She doesn't want to be bothered with that. I'm always worried that that there's a big assignment that I'll be overlooked for because, well, then she'll have to get childcare or she'll have to make arrangements. And this this guy over here won't need to have arrangements, you know? And again, I don't think that's a boss or a, a member of management actively being discriminatory. It just... It's like it's an inherent yeah. bias that they have, and yeah. they don't even realize it. Yeah. I mean, women often don't get asked to sit on the boards or be in the leadership position because, yeah, it is assumed that you have three kids at home and, you know, you're, you're, you must be busy and, and it's probably too much on your plate. Mm-hmm. I've had that said to me before. Like, it's a lot on your plate. Are you sure you want to do this? And and, I, and I'd always say, let me make that decision. Yeah. And maybe it is. Maybe I don't want to take something on. But, you know, I think it's not right to assume that we're too busy. Right. So. Where I, do you see your career going? What's oh, like. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. You know, once you graduate <laughs> medical school and you open your practice, like, that's not the end. No, no. You know, I don't know. I see it growing. I, I hope that. Um, we can attract other dermatologists to come serve here in the Quad Cities. That's a big uh, goal of mine because I am one person and I can only take care of so many people a day. And my patients get really frustrated that there are long wait times and um, new patients can't get in till you know, three months from now or things like that. So 
I'd like to expand our practice, bring more high-quality, well-trained dermatologists to the Quad Cities. Uh, I'd like to sort of go forward with more, um, you know, in terms of political stuff, you know, work on um, banning tanning bed, the legislation to ban tanning beds. Let's get rid of the stupid tanning beds. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. I see no purpose for these. Yeah, I'd like to be involved in more, you know, advocacy for... Um, skin cancer and melanoma. Um, and yeah, banning the tan is a huge, huge uh, passion of mine. I, I can't tell you how many times my patients like to argue with me and say they just need a base tan. Oh, and I God. say, there's no such thing as a safe base tan. I'm yeah. just going to say that. And then they say, oh, well, you're darker complected and you don't understand. And, and I don't understand. I've never been pale and I've never had a bad sunburn. But that being said, I diagnose melanoma every week in my office. I diagnose squamous cell, basal cell carcinoma 10 times a day. Wow. And I will say a majority of these are from tanning beds. Also, you know, boating. Um, sure. You know, the, the guys who work out in the farms and construction. and, and But that's more occupational risk, but for, you know... For you know pleasure, it's it's more boating and tanning bed usage. So yeah, I I would I would love if I had no more skin cancers to get rid of. You know, people say, oh, I'm giving you business. I don't want this business. Oh jeez, I don't. I don't want people to. Oh get Oh my skin gosh, cancer. like you would say that to a lung doctor. Never. Like, oh, I'm smoking to give you business. <laughs> yeah, oh. I hate when people say that. They're like, oh yeah, every time you cut something off, I say, I don't want to have to do this. If you would just not lay out for like hours a day that would really help me out yeah um so that's something I'm passionate about and you know maybe one day we can talk more about skin cancer prevention yeah and and, and why it's so important especially to the to the youth I know in Illinois there's legislation that um minors cannot tan in tanning salons under you know I think 18 but in Iowa it's the legislation is not there yet. Yeah. It's, it's more lax. And we're in a border state where people can go back and forth. Yeah. And it kind of defeats the purpose. So, Well, you're sitting across from someone who is very, very fair-skinned. <laughs> I love it. Um, I, don't, I don't tan um, particularly well, but I'm not the person who burns immediately either. Right. I've kind of, I've, I don't know what that would be considered. That's but called a skin type too. Fitzpatrick's skin type. That's, oh. that's a scale we use. So like a one would be someone who always burns and never tans. Okay. And a two would be like you, like sometimes tan, or usually tans a little bit and then burns. Okay. Yeah, yeah that would be, definitely mm -hmm. be me. And I never, because I'm not crazy about being in the sun, I never really thought about needing a skin cancer check. And I'm a regular getter of facials. And my esthetician not too long ago said, you got a spot on your face, and I think it just looked like a little brown sunspot. And uh -huh. she's like, you know what? It's changed over the last couple of visits. She's like, you probably should get that checked out. Now, it's probably out of an abundance of caution, and, like, she's a great esthetician, but I'm like, oh, man. Like, <laughs> I really should. It's time. it's time. There's really no uh, guidelines on skin checks, unfortunately, you know, like for women and mammograms, there's a certain age, but we don't have that guidance yet. But I would say, you know, my personal guideline is that patients who have more than, you know, 100 moles should be screened, and there's a lot of them. Uh, patients who have had a lot of blistering sunburns in their life, 
Patients who have had prior skin cancer obviously should be screened, or if you have a first-degree relative with melanoma, you should probably be screened. Interesting. So if okay. your mom or your sister has had melanoma, you should probably come in for a skin check. There's some genetic... Um, factors that can play into melanoma. There's very rare inherited melanomas, but um, melanoma-like syndromes, but most of the time it's environment more than gene, but more than your genes, but um, it's still, you know, if you have a first-degree relative, you should come in and get checked out. Okay. And I even have a, a group of patients who are all sisters who all, I diagnose melanoma in every single one of them. <gasps> Because they told, they told their sister to come, and their sister told the other sister, and there you go. And they don't actually have, like, a, a genetic uh, syndrome in their family. They just all tanned a lot when they yeah. were. They were baby boomers, and they tanned with iodine and baby oil. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember when we were growing up, my mom would always buy the SPF 6 Hawaiian Tropic. <laughs> oh, you know no, what I mean? you're killing me. Because <laughs> like, it was just SPF at that point. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. you were like, well, if it's 6, then I'll still get like a little bit of it. Yeah. Tan, no, you know? we want <laughs> SPF 30 or higher uh, and reapply every 60 to 80 minutes when you're outside or if you sweat it off or you need to reapply. Yeah. The reapplication is the key. Most people put it on and then they're done for the day. And that's not right. Also, um, yeah, the SP, the the Hawaiian Tropic tanner. Oh. You know, I had a nanny um, who ha- had a membership to a tanning salon, and I told her I wouldn't hire her unless she quit. Wow, <laughs> I was hardcore. Get it, doctor. And she was like, "What?" And she's like, "That's kind of my personal life." And I'm like, "Sorry, I wouldn't want you smoking around my kids." And so I didn't really, and I kind of equated it to the same thing that, like, you're going to the tanning bed every day is, like, not, first of all, it's not good for you. But second of all, I didn't want my kids to see that as an example. And I said, and she said, well, what if they won't give me my money back? Well, I called the salon for her. And I was like, listen, my nanny cannot tan anymore. You better change the money she's paid for to you. You can switch it over to spray tan, and they did. <laughs> oh wow! So you so, ended up hiring her? Yeah, yeah. She That's was great. Amazing. Great. She was a St. Ambrose uh, student, and then she graduated and left. And uh, if she's listening to this, uh, hi, Patty. <laughs> and you better not be back at that tanning. <laughs> you salon. better not be in the tanning salon. Oh my god! So gosh. I told her to switch everything to uh, spray tan, but um, and that's that's. For your listeners, if you've yeah. got if you've got memberships, ask them to switch them to spray tan. It's a lot safer. So here's the thing about spray tan. So you see how fair that I am. Yeah. And I used to spray tan, or I would get like that Sally Hansen like leg makeup, yeah. whatever, whatever. Yeah. And I finally, I don't know if it was just like having kids or like getting a little older, and I've just decided like. This is my skin, people. Yeah. Like, I no Embrace longer it. feel compelled to change the color of my skin to... Now, would it probably look, quote-unquote, better? Like, could you see my cellulite less? Maybe. <laughs> but I sort of am like, you know what? Like, no one yeah. would tell me to change my eye color. Exactly. No one tell... You know, to, like, I just feel like I'm done worrying about the tone of my legs. That's, you know? That's that's really... So I'm leading a movement is good. what I'm doing. And, and as you should, because, you know, the societal perceptions of what is beautiful skin... Yeah. It's, it's really strange how it differs in different parts of the world. For example, if you go to Asia, 
they want your complexion. They like the more pale you are is considered the more beautiful. And, and they don't look at tanned skin as being something to aspire to. Right. And then you come to America and everybody wants to be super, super tan. So it's very strange how different cultures and societies value beauty yeah. differently. But I really don't care about any of that. I think everyone should just be happy with yeah. what their skin tone is. And this colorism is what I call it. Yeah. Where, you know, people are discriminated against, you know, for being too black in some situations or being too white in certain situations. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. We should just really be happy in our own skin. Tonight, I'm going on the news sleeveless with some white, white arms. (laughs) And that's just the way I look. That's it, sis. That's great. That's great. And (laughs) and embrace it. My best friend is, like, super pale if she's listening to. And um, I encourage her to, like, never change it. Yeah. I love her skin. Yeah. Just we just gotta just lead this charge. Just embrace she it. She can be my sister in <laughs> fairness. <laughs> um, okay, so in addition to loving a facial, I also love some good skincare. Uh, you know what I mean? So yeah. so while we're not Botoxing, and uh-huh. to be clear, I've never had Botox, but yeah. I'm seriously considering <laughs> it. And I will discuss it if I get it. Um, what products are like worthwhile to pay for? And I don't mean like brands or something mm-hmm. like that, but like what ingredients are worth the hype and then which ones are a bunch of hooey if we're trying to pick right. like some products. Right. I, I'm a big um, proponent of spending low on your, on your washes and things like that and then spending high on procedures. I think that, you know... What's, what's considered a procedure? Like a chemical peel okay. or um, uh, Botox or microneedling or laser resurfacing. I think those, those are procedures that can help your skin and give you more bang for your buck. But spending $200 on, on some cream that's going to, you know, make a claim that it's going to f- tighten your neck overnight, it's not worth the hype. Okay. So there's a lot of um, false claims out there on really expensive products and a lot of, uh, you know, multi-level marketing kind of products. I don't want to name names. But, right. Um, you know, people get, get you know, pulled into buying $300 a month kits and stuff, and it, it doesn't do a whole lot for them. Okay. And they come to my office saying, well, I use this, and I didn't see any results. So... I'm, I like to stick to basic cleansers. Um, if you walked with me through a drugstore, like, you know, Walgreens, I could point out amazing things for you to use on your skin. Interesting. Um, the things, you know, I even like basic brands. Most dermatologists love CeraVe. Okay. Um, CeraVe is very gentle on the skin. Um, they make washes and lotions and um, moisturizers and... I love I love that and it's very low price point. Um, Neutrogena also is a is a great brand and Olay, um, but I think the night the nighttime regimen you know you can invest money in a ret- retinoid. Okay. So Retin A or Tretinoin is a prescription um, cream that helps with resurfacing the skin. You just need a tiny little pea sized amount at night before bed. Helps with fine lines, wrinkles, discoloration. So, and that's something like you can get from. Like, do you have to go to a dermatologist yeah, to get that, it? Yeah, that's okay. a prescription, and a tube can, can run. You know, maybe sixty to a hundred dollars, yeah. but it would last you a year. So, I think that is a good investment. 
in terms of topical therapy, okay. a good nighttime retinoid. Now, there's over-the-counter versions of that, which are a lot cheaper. It's called retinol. Oh, Yeah, so the okay. over-the-counter version is called retinol, but the prescription version is like tretinoin. So they're a family. Okay. So you can buy an over-the-counter version. Rock, R-O-C, makes a good over-the-counter retinol night cream. But um, I always tell my patients, you know, let's buy some drugstore cleansers and drugstore, you know, sunblock, moisturizer, and then spend your money on retinoids at nighttime or, again, like uh, cosmetic procedures. Interesting. Yeah. And, okay. But sunblock or sunscreen is your best friend to combat aging. I'm well, and I love you. that most foundations have it already in yes, now. So yes. like, is, is that, will that suffice if you, like in It Cosmetics, for example, right. they have, it's 25 SPF. Is that just as good as wearing like a SPF cream on its own or no, do you need them both? No, I think you need them both. Okay. Um, and the thing is, you know, you, you can put on your foundation in the morning and you're probably good for an hour or so, hour or two. But then if you're going to go out later, if you're going to you know, take a stroll, you probably want to reapply your sunblock. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So the reapplication is, is key. If you actually look at a bottle of, of sunscreen, you'll see that um, in very fine print, it'll tell you minutes underneath it. <gasps> no one ever knows this, and, and that's the minutes you should really reapply. Okay. In my opinion, if you're in direct sunlight. Interesting. Also, people who commute to work... Um, driving long distances, you're not realizing you're getting a lot of sun exposure in your car. Yeah, and on that left side. On the left side. So they've done studies that show that people photo age more rapidly on the left side of their face, especially these studies have been done in truck drivers who drive hours and hours of, you know, years of their lives are spent on the road. They have higher rates of left-sided skin cancer left on their left hand, left arm as it's hanging out the window left ear. So yeah, you can, you can notice that. And I point that out in my patients all the time. I'll say, Hey, you know, you have more sunspots on the left side of your face. And they say, what? I say, yeah. So that 30 minute drive back and forth to work every day, you're probably getting more UV through the sun, through yeah. the window. Yeah. Dang. Ugh. I know. Okay. More Gotta things to worry about. I know. I know. <laughs> um, where do you stand on this super hot thing of dermaplaning? Like where you shave the little yeah, hairs off your I face? Think, I think that's... I'm into it. It's fun. I mean, I've had it done before yeah. uh, at one of my friend's practices, and I liked it. I just don't think it has a like a long-term effect. Okay. It's really good for like peach fuzz and getting off, you know, like exfoliating on the surface. But in terms of the longevity of the procedure, is it going to really, you know, remodel the tissue and, and, and give you new collagen and everything? No, it does okay. not do that. But it, it's, it makes you feel nice and fresh and glowy. So is to, like, what do you think is a better, like, so I've had, um, like, microdermabrasion and I've had, like, a variety of different peels, mm -hmm. but I haven't ever tried the microneedling. What oh, are your thoughts on that? Really? Yes, I do a lot of microneedling in my practice. Really? Yes. Uh, microneedling is different than dermabrasion as it goes deeper. Yeah. And it, and it punctures the skin. Um, we do numb the face before we do the procedure. Um, and it basically... Uh, this, this microneedling stimulates uh, your cells to produce more collagen in sort of a natural a natural way. Um, I actually do a procedure in my office, microneedling with PRP. 
So platelet-rich plasma. I don't know if you've heard of that. Is that like the vampire blood? Yes, it's called, it's called vampire facial. I think, unfortunately, the Kardashians kind of spread that all over social media. So patients are like, do you do a vampire facial? I say, no. I do platelet-rich plasma microneedling. That's the proper term. But um, we draw your blood in our office um, in a tube, and then we have, I have a lab, and a technician spins it down, and we basically get um, about six cc's of very uh, golden yellow platelet-rich plasma. And platelets contain growth factors. We call it platelet-derived growth factor, essentially kind of like a stem cell. Um, we micro-needle the skin with a machine causing tiny little um, um, holes in the skin and then push in the uh, platelets. And so it helps recovery, it helps stimulate uh, resurfacing of the skin, um, and it's nice. And people heal within, you know, 24 hours, so okay. there's really no downtime. You just look really sunburned when you leave my office. Okay. Yeah, but it's, it's okay, very popular. Okay, so now popular. That, was the fi- that was the treatment, though, that um, wasn't there like an Arizona spa yes. that everybody got sick yes. from doing that facial? So, so it wasn't the facial, it was the procedures, I, huh? I believe um, that I was a long time ago. I don't ago. know that case. I remember hearing about it. I think it was not done by physicians, first of all. It was not in a doctor's office. Yeah. It was like a it was a spa and um, I don't think they had proper um, training probably in in you know, doing a bloodborne procedure. Oh yeah, people. Um, let's see. Uh, they might exposed have, to HIV. Yeah. yeah, yeah. With any procedure that involves in New Mexico. There we go. Yeah, no, any procedure that me. involves you know um, blood, um, you you should have it done by a medical professional in a in a doctor's office. Um, I'm just gonna like you with questions here apparently but like <laughs> so that's the other thing that you brought up to me is there are so many spas yeah. and salons yeah. and all kinds of really great local business owners that do this stuff so how do you know which one is a good one to go to yeah that's a good question i i love you know i'm friends with a lot of people who own great spas and uh, around the area i just think um, you know, do your research, talk to your physician, you know, ask your dermatologist where, where you should go yeah. for more invasive procedures. I mean, I am of the mindset that Botox fillers, these kind of procedures that can have uh, side effects or, you know, medical consequences should be done by somebody who can handle the, uh, the side effects. If you, yeah. you shouldn't really do a procedure if you can't manage a complication of the procedure. Um, so, you know, most of the time uh, people do a good job with this, but in the event that something, you know, bad happens or there's a complication that needs to be fixed, um, you know, it's best you see someone who's certified in that. So, yeah. Particularly, I, I recommend a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon to do a lot of these procedures. Um, and, you know, it gets into a compli- complicated question of scope of practice. But yeah. I think, you know, there are some things that, you know, spas do very well. You know, massages and facials and, you know, nails and hair and all that kind of stuff. Uh, dermaplaning. But when we start getting into procedures that involve, you know, injections, um, 
injecting collagen, injecting blood product, I think it's probably best to consult your physician. Uh, but that's just my opinion. Well, hey, yeah. and we're dealing with our faces here, yeah. so it's not like we can really play <laughs> around too much. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if you go to the AAD, American Academy of Dermatology website, AAD.com, no matter where you're listening from, you can just type in your zip code and you can find a board-certified uh, dermatologist and, who specializes in all these things, too. So it's not hard to find one. Um but we definitely want to support our local businesses too. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to detract from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I think I'm going to let you go. This okay. has been such good information. Um, the skincare part was my fave. <laughs> I could talk skincare for a while with you. Um, but I hope, I hope that we made, um, you've answered a ton of my questions about this crazy black mirror episode that we're all currently a part of. Um, so I appreciate you very much. Thank and, you. Um, I Remember hope clean cover informed. contain. Clean <laughs> cover contain. Quarantine. Yes. Quiet. Yes. To our children. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Ahmad, Dr. Noreen Ahmad. Tell people where your office is located again. I'm at uh, Medical Arts Dermatology at 600 John Deere Road, Suite 200. All right. Thank you so, so much for your time today. All right. Stay well, everyone. You've been listening to On a Mother Level. Share this episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being part of our community. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.